to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannonia Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. I am here with Fred Siegel, teaching professor of English here at Drexel University, and where he's also the director of the first year writing program. And we are going to be talking about magic and performance in everyday life and teaching. Hey, Fred. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me, Melinda. It's my pleasure. I was telling a friend of mine, magic is one of those things that people either really seem to love or really seem to dislike. And I feel like the root of both is the deception part. I actually love being deceived in that way because I consume so much that when I am thoroughly surprised, I'm like, oh, childhood wonder unlocked. I think a lot of it has to do with how you do it. Mm. There's a lot of obnoxiousness. <laughs> well, there are obnoxious performers in all contexts. Yeah. If you make people feel good, you, you can do magic in such a way that people enjoy it. Now, if you're going to make do magic in such a way that it makes people feel stupid. You know, you're not going to win in friends or influence people. Is that part of how you got started on this journey? Or is it, I fell in love with the got your nose and it just all got there from there? There's truth in all of those. <laughs> so my one man show, Man of Mystery, tries to answer the question in several ways about how I started. I mean, one, one answer is you, you're a little kid and you get a magic kit. And my gosh, this little plastic thing here where you pick it up and there's a ball in it mm -hmm. and, and then do this and then it, it's gone. And uh, maybe the adults don't know exactly how it happened. Or maybe they're fooling you mm. and, and pretending they don't know how it happened. I mean, uh, what better thing is there for an eight-year-old who has no control over anything? Yeah. And in my case, it's a little kid who wants to deceive people, <laughs> who wants to have power. Yeah. Because I wasn't going to get power by shooting baskets really well. Right. I, I wasn't going to get power by running the sprint faster than all the other kids, but I was able to do this. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> Ooh, don't know my own strength. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Another part of the answer is Uncle Phil would pull a quarter out from behind my ear. And that was a beautiful and loving thing. Mm. So that's part of it. You know, I often tell the story of the ape girl mm -hmm. who, who I saw in Atlantic City, New Jersey. This was a million dollar pier, but it used to be an amusement pier. And in front of it, there was a tent on the boardwalk. And, you know, you'd see the ape girl, the ape girl. You see the hair grow. See the ape girl, the ape girl, the ape girl. Pay your 75 cents. And you would go into the room, uh, into this dank little tent, and the woman gradually turns into a gorilla. Every time they hit the gong, she becomes a little bit more <laughs> of a gorilla. And by the fourth time, she's full gorilla. Hmm. Well, there was a book in my school library called More Fun with Magic. Hmm. And I read all the magic books. I loved the magic books. That was literature to me. <laughs> and at the end of that book, there was something called the Black Art Change Cabinet. Hmm. And what I'm looking at here in, in The Ape Girl is the Black Art Change Cabinet made big. Hmm. Instead of changing your sister's dolly into a skeleton, they changed a real live woman into a big, hairy, ugly gorilla. Mm -hmm. uh, because I knew 
how it was done. It was a 19th century trick. But once the ape girl turned into the gorilla and she started shaking the cage and I'm watching this thing and I think this is nothing. I'm not scared. And then all of a sudden she breaks out of the cage <laughs> when she lunges. And eight-year-old Fred, fully aware of the piece of glass that enabled the reflection to make it look like this woman turned into a gorilla. Mm. I was out of there. <laughs> I was out of there instantaneously. And the people outside were looking at me and laughing. Give to the gorilla girl, gobs and gobs of love. No one else will touch that girl unless they're war gloves. So there was this tremendous power in that magic trick. And also, I think that was the weekend my dad bought me my first Svengali deck. Oh. So that's the one where they all turn into the Ace of Spades or whatever <laughs> card is. Mine was a Six of Hearts. You know, I wanted the Ace of Spades. Yeah. <laughs> I did wind up getting an Ace of Spades deck because in my Man of Mystery show, I begin by talking about when I first saw this, it was the TV magic cards. Mm. Marshall Brodeen would do the Svengali deck with an ace of spades. Hi, I'm Marshall Brodeen, a professional magician. You know, most magic tricks are easy once you know the secret. Now take magic cards. You don't have to be a magician to perform all kinds of amazing card tricks because it works by itself. Six or 60, you can work TV magic cards, the mechanical deck that works all by itself. TV magic cards, just one ninety eight at Dominic's Finer Foods, Goldblatt's, or wherever you see the sign, and at Walgreen and Walgreen H&C drugstores. One of the other things that happens during the weekend I saw the ape girl, I saw men perform with magic cards where any card could transform into the ace of spades. Mm. So uh, I wanted to be able to actually have an ace of spades. Yeah. At the time that you're coming of age, is magic a thing or is this somewhat kind of marginal? I came of age about in time for a 70s magic renaissance. Mm -hmm. 1970, 71, had a guy named Mark Wilson who used to have a kiddie show on television, but he had a series of television specials now called Magic Circus. Now, here's the man with the magic touch, Mark Wilson. Show. Now, for the next few minutes, what you see may be hard to believe, but actually magic is quite simple. And Doug Henning, by 1974, stars on Broadway in The Magic Show, and it becomes a bigger thing. Suddenly you start having yearly specials. Thank you! Welcome to my world of magic, a world of wonder and enchantment. Doug Henning had a yearly special. Suddenly Copperfield appears mm. and starts having specials. Oh man, I used to watch all of them. At this point, there's so much magic yeah. on so many different channels that I don't even try to keep up with it all. <laughs> but oh, young Fred would have watched anything and everything. It's so interesting because I've been watching, I've been mostly watching Columbo for the past couple of months. And they have at least two or three magician episodes spread throughout time. To your point, there's a small child explaining magic to Columbo, and he's like, how do you do that trick? You a magician? Hey, look at it. Uh, just a cop. You a magician? Watch this. Pick a card. Anyone you like. Got it? Got it. In the middle. Well, you cut In the middle. No, it's not. It's on the top. What's your card? Ace of diamonds. Is this the Ace of Diamonds? Let's do that again. 
a lot of shows had uh, had a magic episode across mm-hmm. genres. The Brady Bunch. One of the kids on the Brady Bunch got into magic for a while. Yeah, I wasn't it like Peter. Yeah, it was Peter. Yeah, Peter the Great. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, observe. The linking rings are linked. And they're still linked. <laughs> Abracadabra. Oh. Hey. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is reaching, but I'm thinking about the magician kind of controlling the narrative and controlling the trick, but also allowing space for the audience to come up with their own story or their own understanding of what the trick actually is. I think what they come to see, they come to see something that they know can't be done. Mm. They, they want to see something impossible happen. So let's talk the uh, torn and restored newspaper. Mm-hmm. The magician takes a newspaper and rips it to pieces. And then suddenly the newspaper restores itself. It, it just unrolls, it unfolds. And it's back to the way it was. Now, my presentation of that trick is to recall when Doug Henning did that trick. So in a sense, I'm telling a story about my life in magic. Mm -hmm. I'm telling a story about how I was inspired. I'm telling a story about how I was fascinated. I was telling a story about the greatest magician of my childhood. There there are some magicians who've made a, a big splash uh, in the world of magic. So uh, let's think about Penn and Teller, mm-hmm. for whom a magic show is a, a discussion of believing in foolish things or a promotion of skepticism. We could not agree more. We've been thrown out of uh, the magic circle and the magic castle for giving away magic secrets. Giving away magic secrets, or rather not giving away magic secrets, is not a moral rule it's a compositional rule when you're starting out and you're doing a trick for somebody and afterwards they say how did you do that if you tell them the whole illusion crumbles while Penn and Teller will tell you very directly and in in many different ways over and over that they're full of it Mm -hmm. that this is a bunch of lies for your entertainment and by the way these lies you might be having other lies told to you Mm Whereas you have somebody like David Blaine, and I, I got to tell you, I have friends who uh, don't know much about magic, but see David Blaine and they think, well, he's real, isn't he? <laughs> he's kind of like a shaman or something. Yeah. Of course, you know, he, he's blurring the boundaries because some of what he's doing is a sideshow thing. Uh, another subject that I'm interested in and have some experience with. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with the sideshow? Sure. First of all, one of my earliest recollections is going to Madison Square Garden when I was a little kid. They still had the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, but they still had a sideshow. And I I remember seeing the Alligator Skin Man, and I'd seen some other sideshows. But these days, most performances of that nature are people doing what would have been called a working act. They learn how to eat fire. Mm. They learned how to hammer nails up their nose. They learned how to swallow swords. Mm -hmm. And there was, when I was in graduate school, I was going to NYU in the late 80s, early 90s, and nothing more fun than going to Coney Island during the summer. And there's a sideshow at Coney Island, for God's sake. You know, there was Melvin Burkhart, the anatomical wonder, the man who grows, the man who can breathe through one lung at a time. 
He's also the two-faced man who could smile on one side of his face while frowning on the other. Yes, he could be mad and glad all at the same time. <laughs> they also had Screwy Louie, the human blockhead, the man who could drive nails, ice picks, and 20-penny spikes into the center of his head with a hammer, and yet he lived to laugh and joke about it. <laughs> all real. Or your money back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I used to I'd go on the cyclone. I'd eat a hot dog at Nathan's. Always the cyclone before the hot dog. Well, yeah. Might be dangerous the other way around. <laughs> In the summer of 89, I did three weekends. And then the final, the following year, Melvin had retired and I was asked to come in. Mm. I did it. I did the sideshow. I just did weekends because I was teaching at NYU during the week. <laughs> I was teaching composition as a graduate student. I was taking classes. But I did over 300 shows that summer in just those 10 or so weekends. Mm. I became rather fearless as the performer. question about that podcast you do are you on the instagram or the twitter or the facebook you know like if i have an idea for a podcast how do i get in touch with you love you bye sup mom uh yeah so you can find us on all those things actually twitter instagram facebook just go to pop quest pod on any one of those and follow if you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at PopQ at Drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. I know that you referenced popular magicians, but in terms of popular culture narratives about magicians, are there texts that you think get it right or are they all maligning the magician? Okay, so we recently saw a remake of Nightmare Alley. The remake is good and the uh, original version was good, but it was based on a book and it's about a, um, well, a, a kind of a carny who learns the secrets of quote unquote mind reading and becomes a terribly uh, exploitative person. There's a case in which the magician is a malevolent character. He could charm his way out of anything. He's a man after my own heart. Tell me more. About him? Sure, about you. What about me? I know that uh, you like chocolates. And you like to read. And dancing. <laughs> When's the last time you did? <laughs> A while. Yeah? We're gonna fix that. You ready? Giddy up. They got the way that sideshow looked so right. You kind of learn how some of these quote-unquote tricks are done. And it's actually bringing up something significant because I wrote in my dissertation about the difference between conjuring and paraconjuring. One of the um, ways in which magic changed in the era of vaudeville is that you had a whole category of magic act, and I'm counting in that category fortune-telling kind of act, an act in which 
one partner communicates information to the other partner psychically. Mm-hmm. Houdini escaping from something. It's not a trick. A trick in the sense that there's a secret mechanism. Right. But sometimes he would also escape from a straitjacket legitimately, and he would he would do a lot of his escapes legitimately. Hypnotism, something that is sort of legitimate, but maybe not so legitimate as it was practiced on stages. There's a whole new category of this. You know, it's very strange that we've evolved to the point where a lot of people see magicians in the context of reality television shows. Mm. You've got America's Got Talent Mm -hmm. and you've got, well, Penn and Teller's. Penn and Teller's show is something different. I love their show. Mm. But uh, okay, so how people are depicted, though, you see America's Got Talent, and you're talking about the personal issues mm-hmm. of these performers. So uh, that I don't watch that at all. I mean, reality television is about the emotional manipulation, right? So it's like presenting it in a particular way that is usually with the dramatic music and the comeuppance narrative or like coming from, you know, nowhere and succeeding because of this show that we've put on, which doesn't really feel authentic or exciting. This is me when I was one year old. This is when the real magic began for me. And these are my special memories since I started the magic. Ever since I was little, I'd love to play with the imagination. Uh, Because in my imagination, any magic was possible. Like this. I miss Ed Sullivan. (laughs) He didn't care about their lives. They just had one act. The mouse would come out and say, I love you, Eddie. And then the guy would spin the plates and then an opera singer would come out. That I I like. Yeah. I think about this all the time, actually, in in thinking about what it means to go up in front of a class and try to do partially razzle-dazzling because I'm really excited about what we're doing. So a part of that, though, for me, involves the work of trying to get them excited as well. And that requires me to perform and be like, isn't this exciting? I'm I'm the barker in this scenario. All right, ladies and gentlemen, step right up. Hurry, hurry, hurry. See this spectacular shooting show and death display. But it sounds like to, for, for you, is it all like performative? Would you like me to make the argument that my performing life is separate or that my performing life is the same as my teaching life? You tell me. I'm making your argument. <laughs> Which do you feel is the most accurate? Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? <laughs> I was a young te- a baby teacher, a tiny little teacher at NYU. I was small enough to fit in your pocket. <laughs> And I'm doing one of my early classes, and I always had a file card with a list of what I'm going to do in class. And the first thing on the list, it always said, take role. Mm-hmm. And one day, the student on my right looks at my card and says, you spelled that wrong. Yeah. And I spelled it R-O-L-E. So I said to her, well, I realize calling role is usually R-O-L-L, but I'm also taking R-O-L-E because... I'm taking the role of the teacher. Mm. And at this point in my career, that was a stretch. Mm -hmm. So this idea of taking role for me has been hugely useful as a writing teacher Mm -hmm. and as a person thinking about human interaction. Now, that said, it has to be a very interactive kind of performance. Yeah. This being a performer, Mm -hmm. we're doing it whether we want to or not, Mm -hmm. whether we know it or not. So my performance life is not separate. 
And another link on the chain of my performance stuff is my experience doing improv. Mm -hmm. Starting from, I auditioned for Grandma Sylvia's funeral, but a lot of it was interacting with people. Mm. You know, I'd go up to people and say, oh, shalom. Uh, uh, did you know my grandma <laughs> i eventually auditioned for comedy sports and got in and i'm still in and uh, i did tongue and groove that was long form improv mm. so uh it is performing but the other people in the room are also performers yes whether they know it or not i was gonna ask a question about whether or not it was hard or is hard to move from performing as a magician where you have a lot of control in the performance to improv where you are dependent, you are constantly collaborating, but at the same time, you're also doing the same kind of things of, of providing the illusion that these scenarios are seamless. There's still a sleight of hand. There's still a, a sense of creating something out of assumingly nothing. Right. Well, improv sure does seem magical when it works well. 1000%. Yeah. And yet the bar isn't that high when you're, <laughs> when you're creating something off the cuff like that, just doing the most obvious thing mm -hmm. is, is the best. Mm. It makes people feel, oh my, that, you know, it, it, it looks incredible. Well, magic is very interactive too. The disadvantage of doing magic is that in most cases, I'm the only magician. Right. But in an improv show, if things are working as they should, mm -hmm. I'm on stage with a bunch of other people who want me to succeed mm. and who I want to succeed. And if everybody is doing their job well and everybody makes everybody else look good, easy. <laughs> To wrap this up, though, Melinda, I, I want to say how much I appreciate and enjoyed having this conversation with you. So thank you for inviting me. Fred, this was truly my pleasure. And, and let me tell you, the great thing about Zoom is that you can be doing this, <gasps> right? Uh, now, the audience, <laughs> people who are listening to this, it's happening. But, but, you know, I've been twiddling with these cards pretty much the whole conversation. I've been trying not to be loud. You know, you didn't hear me. I did, and it was such an illusion. <laughs> not, not an illusion. It is. It is to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik, with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. What are we talking about? Practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice. We're talking about practice, man.